0: From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep. We dive deep into Catholic teaching, the many Catholic people surrounding our faith. I'm Andrew Hanson. She is Amber Servini. He is Father Chris House. Good to see you all. Papal infallibility. That's our topic today. Rome, one of your favorite cities, right, Father House? Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> How could it not be? Good food, good architecture, good art. Did you did you study there? For, no. No, you didn't. Okay. Okay. Um, My Midwest sensitivities probably couldn't have handled it, (laughs) but a great place to visit.
0: I was surprised. I went there in May, beautiful city, but I was actually surprised by the lack of greenery. It actually kind of wore on me. I felt, you know, there's so much stone and this cars and the smog or whatever, you know, after a while I just needed, because then I went to the seminary school, the North American College, and where there's much more greenery and stuff like that, I just felt this much more peace.
1: It's a very dusty place. It is dusty. Yeah.
0: And a little more dirty than I thought, too. Yeah. But it's all of your. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's got some beauty in it. And of course, and all the architecture, the art it's tremendous. Papal infallibility. Uh, this is another one of those topics that our Protestant friends definitely poke us on. But I think it's a very big misnomer because I think people just throw out their papal infallibility. Anything the Pope says, it's infallible. That's not true.
1: No.
2: Nope. Uh, and our, that's not like just our it. Protestant friends who think that, listen, I didn't know anything about this until I had to research this. Oh, you're admitting. Oh, you're admitting. <laughs> Tell us more, Amber. No, I'm joking. So what, what is
0: papal and To Define that.
1: because well, I it, think what you're probably talking about is you know when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, or literally from the chair, from, from yeah. From like the a what? No, I mean, it's, that's, it's not just he sits in his chair, which would be actually a St. John Lateran in Rome. And just talks. No, it's uh, actually the theology of it was not really formally defined until Pastor Turnus in 1870, the document coming out of uh, the Constitution coming out of the First Vatican Council, and that's what actually defined the dogma of papal and fallibility or the doctrine of it. It was believed, but um, it really wasn't until Blessed Pius IX in 1870 that's put out there. So what it believes is that in speaking of in matters of faith and morals— that the pope cannot err when speaking ex cathedra. So he has to deliberately be speaking of that. So, I mean, can the pope err? Absolutely. But when when speaking in the person of the office of the successor of Peter, who is there to safeguard and confirm the faith, when speaking in that capacity, he cannot err. It's only been done one time. Since 1870, and
0: and that's a yet that's huge right yeah. there. I mean, again, people throw out this term like, "Oh, you guys are he's infallible all the day, every day." That's you know, one time,
1: right? It was in 18 in 1870 was the Constitution Pastor Eternus, which put out this doctrine of papal infallibility, and then it was Pope Pius XII in 1950 through an encyclical deus, Deus, which I just really. Slaughtered that Latin there. It's kind of a big tongue twister. <laughs> sounded good to me. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. It's it's you. It's good, yeah. good. <laughs> But it was on the assumption of the Blessed Mother, her the belief of her Assumption body and soul into heaven. And you know, Pius the twelfth also when he spoke ex cathedra, didn't just on a whim say, "I think it'd be kind of neat if we declared that Mary was taken body and soul into heaven." I think this is a good day to do that. Didn't happen that way. What did he do? He consulted bishops from around the world who are the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. He consulted these bishops, the College of Bishops. What do your people believe in regards to Mary, our Blessed Mother, at the end of her earthly life? And the overwhelming consensus, having been held for centuries, was that at the end of her earthly life, Mary was taken body and soul into the glory of heaven. So, having received all this, seeing that the faithful held this belief, Pope Pius XII declares this a dogma of the Church. He declares that ex cathedra. declares it to be infallible, but not just some random statement. It was a statement that is held by the faithful, has been found to be tried and true, and at the core of what we believe as Catholics.
0: And when he makes that statement, he actually
1: has to use those words of basically what I'm about to say is infallible. Right. He defines it as being infallible. So, and there there are certain key phrases and other documents, you know, to uh, to defend the faith. Uh, to confirm the brethren, things like that. There are certain key phrases you'll find in a document that um, actually, when I was in in, uh, Canon Law School, I did a paper on um, different levels of teaching and what had to be held and different things like that. And a great example of this is in 1994, Pope St. John Paul II wrote on the ordination of priests this document which declared that ordination was reserved to men alone. And it was declared that that document was an infallible teaching. Now, he did not give that ex cathedra, but it was declared to be an infallible teaching because you find these key phrases in there. And at the time, Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, later Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Ratzinger, as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, wrote this very beautiful theological commentary on that came about at this time also on the profession of faith, specifically the profession of faith that pastors and priests who take other offices where they have to profess. And so about the different levels of teaching in the church, but at the same time, this talked about how this was considered to be an infallible teaching, even though it was not pronounced ex cathedra.
2: Well, I mean, I'm going to dumb this way down. So this was my, this was my uh, knowledge of this. So on Catholic match, you have to answer questions. This is one of them. Do you believe um, in papal infallibility? So I work for the church. I check. Yes. Right. Okay. And that's where I'm at. And then I started to read about this and I'm like, time out. Are you, you're not Catholic. If you're checking no on this, why is that a question? Um why that's is it Catholic match? That's what, well, yeah, that's what kind of got me about all this. Cause it made it when you say like, it, it gives like seven things. Do you believe in this, 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 and this? And that's like the last one. So. It makes it seem like it's this thing that you may believe in or you may not believe in, and no big deal.
1: And I think the many thing for with many things, it's not so much a question of do people believe it or not, but first do they even understand what it is? And I'd say the
0: vast majority don't.
1: And that's the thing, and that's not that's not a criticism, but the media doesn't understand it. Um, The average person on the street doesn't understand it and most Catholics don't understand it. And that's all the more reason why we need a better catechesis, better faith formation, not just for kids but for adults, is what do we mean by papal infallibility? It's not just, you know, the the Pope says, I think the sky is this shade of blue and that's an infallible statement. No. It's faith and morals and spoken in a specific, deliberate way that's meant to safeguard the faith.
0: So really, you said the assumption in 1950, and then the ordination of men to the priesthood, which wasn't verbally, but more—it's an infallible form.
1: teaching, but it wasn't ex cathedra. It wasn't given ex cathedra. So okay. that's something. There's distinctions. So the pope, but both are infallible, correct? Because the pope can speak ex cathedra. He is the head of the church on earth, the successor of Saint Peter, who was put in that place by our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 16:18. So, the Pope can define something as being infallible. An ecumenical council in union with the Pope. So, the Second Vatican Council, that was an ecumenical council. Vatican I, Chalcedon, um, Ephesus, different ones throughout the history of the church. Those are the college of bishops together in union with the Holy Father, has to be in union. An ecumenical council has no authority, in fact, can't even meet if it's not in union with the Holy Father. So the pope with the College of Bishops and Ecumenical Council can put out an infallible teaching, or the pope with what we call the ordinary universal magisterium. So the pope and the bishop's teaching truth in union together, that takes on the character of infallibility. So the assumption is an ex cathedra statement. The notion of priestly ordination being reserved to men alone, that would, comes out from the magisterium, and it's considered infallible. Why? Because it's a teaching, a belief that's held to protect a dogmatic truth, that being the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is a divinely revealed reality given by Jesus Christ himself. This is my body. This is my blood. Not a sign, not a symbol. But bread and wine become his true presence through the power of the Holy Spirit— manifesting itself in the actions of a priest or a bishop. If you tamper with the priesthood, if you would then disrupt that succession that is passed down through the bishops, you could endanger the reality. Without a priesthood, you don't have a Eucharist. Without a priesthood, there's no sacrifice. So that is why it was determined that that teaching was infallible because it was believed that to to open the priesthood up to men and women was contrary to the deposit of the faith, was contrary to to our tradition that was handed on to us by Christ himself. And so to disrupt that, to alter that, would negate the priesthood, and therefore would negate the reality of having the Eucharist. So that's why some of their teachings— when they're used to protect a dogmatic truth, why well, they can also be considered infallible. Because, I mean, the dogma of the Eucharist is an infallible teaching.
2: I mean, what I think is, like, reassuring about this, I mean, as a Catholic, right. there isn't, like, a way for something to go wrong. I mean, there's many faiths who uh, it's based off a man's thought or a person's thought or feeling or what's going on at that time. For us, like, um, I even was even reading that there's a pope that maybe wasn't, I don't know who who did falter. Back there's been in the a lot. Of, there's
0: been a lot of
1: popes. Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: And so, but the idea is that our faith is protected because because of this,
1: really. Right, and that's why the pope himself, the pope as a man, is not infallible. The office of the pope, in certain instances of teaching, possesses infallibility so when he when he makes these
0: infallible statements, which again has been one the assumption and if you want to I guess lump in the the priest is only you know for men um at that point are we now called so let's say before the before nineteen fifty um I could believe that the assumption of Mary happened I maybe not believe then then because the, it wasn't defined It was defined right. then once
1: it's defined am I called as a Catholic to now fully accept that and to believe that right because it's a dogmatic truth and dogmatic Truths, so things that are divinely revealed must be held and believed. So you can find that in the Code of Canon Law. <laughs> if you've got nothing else to do, So you are a canon lawyer. But there's other <laughs> levels of that, though, too. You know, I mean, any teaching of the church is meant to be held and respected. But then there's a deeper level. There's like we call then a so that's like a level three. Level two would be other teachings that y- you may not understand or fully believe, but you're still to give your assent to but then there are those things that are divinely revealed. They have to be both held and believed. Are there any other issues
0: percolating out there that you can think of that we are being discussed or for infallibility, for infallibility? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the assumption obviously is always an oral tradition that was passed on you know, since, you know, since, since Mary lived here on this earth. Um, are there any other thing? I mean, cause yeah, I mean, you mentioned there's, there's been one. Uh, so I didn't know if you knew of any other issues that were kind of out there
1: I mean, there's other ones out there. I mean, there are, I can't think of one. I think it's kind of, seems like most of the points have been decided okay. on. But I mean, before, probably the last, before the assumption, the last big um, defining of something being uh, infallible would have been in 1854 when Mary's Immaculate Conception was defined as being a dogmatic truth. But that, of course, that was 16 years before. Pastor Turnus and the doctrine of of papal infallibility papal infallibility had was believed was held go back all the way back, I believe to the the fourth or fifth century, the Council of Elvira, basically saying you know looking at these canons only hold power and authority if uh if they're approved by the Bishop of Rome, so basically looking at that, it's within the Bishop of Rome in the see of Peter, his successor. That is where this ultimate power to confirm and to hold together, to safeguard the faith. That is where that resides. That's the whole point about exercising this notion of infallibility. It's not because I can or I want to, but it's to safeguard the faith and it it's to shore up, to safeguard the faith of the sisters and brothers in Christ.
0: So in the end, are we to believe that there will never be a pope that says something that is you know 100% contrary to the Catholic Church?
1: For a pope to speak in heresy, and this is kind of the whole thing, who, would, who judges the pope, because the pope can't be judged according to the law of the church. But if it would be found, and this is in canon law, that a pope is guilty of heresy, he would be deprived of the See of Peter. He would lose his chair. loses infallibility. Yeah. So, But remember one thing. It's not so much that the pope possesses infallibility. It's the office. I just, that that's, a, that's, that's an important distinction. That, that possesses infallibility. Because popes come and go. They live, they die. But the office remains and endures, has for 2,000 years.
0: It's been an interesting topic. All right, Father, it's good to have you. In- Canon Law, how, how, how was your Canon Law degree getting that? Was it Was, it, it was, was it, it interesting? Like and fascinating?
1: There, there were some things that were riveting and interesting, and there were some things that it's just like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but that's just how it is. So how it
0: was many, good. How many years did that take you?
1: I did it over uh, five summers and then courses in the middle. In so. D.C.? Yeah. Catholic university while being pastor of three parishes, vocation director and
0: lots of other great things, but see all that time off of purgatory. You just, you knocked it out there doing that five years of canon law. From
1: your lips to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. Well, that has been dive deep. You want more podcasts, go to dio.org slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.